0: At the outset of Parshas Midbar in Perak Bays, we read with great detail the outline of the structure of the Jewish people's encampment while they were in the Midbar, in the desert. The people are instructed to surround the Mishkan on all four sides. On each of the sides, there are groups, altogether now four groups, each which had three shvatim. Four groups of three in the four directions completely surrounding the Mishkan. Within each group of three Shvatim, the Torah tells us, there was a leading Shevet. Yehuda led the group to the east, Ruvain to the south, Ephraim to the west, and Dun in the north. And each of these groups, each of these clusters, had a Degel reflecting that leading tribe of the particular group. Question as we go through all of these details and details is why was it important for them to do it, and why is any of it important for us to know? Let's highlight three answers, three different approaches that are found in the Rishonim. Ibn Ezra here suggests that in fact the physically powerful tribes of Yehuda and Dun are selected specifically to the most strategic and important positions of the camp, the front and the back. This way they have a front strength when they have to attack and they have a strength in the back protecting their rear flank. This idea, this focus on the military prowess of the group of Jewish people of the camp is also highlighted by the Abarbanel, who adds that those sections that are so important strategically, front and back, are also, if you look at the tabulations of the various groups of Shvatim that the Torah gives us, it is these two, the front and the back, which are the most heavily populated, adding to their military strength. It's interesting that we can... Parallel this approach of the Ebenezer and Abarbanel, who say that the Torah's stress on how the the tribes were s- situated in the Midbar as being in preparation for their military uh, prowess and the fact that eventually they're going to have to go into Eretz Yisrael and fight the nations of Canaan, it fits and parallels a comment of the Rashbam and others early in the Sefer, the first paragraph of Ba'midbar, where we have a different, very technical. Uh, incredibly detailed description in Psukim, and that is of a census that is taken by the Moshe of the Jewish people as they're about to begin their march in the desert. And the question of why we need yet another census so, Rashbam says in a similar vein as what we've just seen that now that the Jewish people are traveling to Eretz Israel, where they will need to go to war with the Canaanite nations, so Moshe is taking account and making an assessment of the military strength. So, parallel to that, Rashbam. We have our first approach as to why the Torah spends so much time focusing on the layout and the division of the campment. Ibn Ezra and Barbanel say it has to do with preparing the people for any possible military threat. A second approach is suggested by the Ramban in his haqdama, his introduction to bar He says that the encampment was intended to recreate the scene of Ma'amad Har Sinai. We know back in Sefer Shmos, at the time of the giving of the Torah, there was a din of Hagbalah group of halachos that were very strictly drawing boundaries around the mountain and anyone who came close and violated and tr- tr- trespassed those boundaries would actually be Chayiv Misa, it's a capital punishment. So too now, says Ramban, boundaries are drawn around the Mishkan regulating who would be able to come close to that holy place. While time doesn't permit giving all of the examples, the Ramban very brilliantly shows w- numerous parallels between the Pesukim here in Parak Bays and our parsha and the Pesukim that relate to Har Sinai. And the idea seems to be in a very powerful and meaningful way that we are highlighting the idea that the Mishkan was a portable or traveling Harsinai. We shouldn't think that Sinai was just a one-time magical spiritual moment, a moment in time never to be recreated, a singular moment. Of course it was. But what Ramban and others who follow him are really highlighting is that an element and a dimension of the unique experience of Sinai was able to be portable, was able to be traveling with the people, was able to be taken with them. And the Mishkan as the center of the people, and the way we surrounded the Mishkan was similar to the way we surrounded the mountain to highlight this fact that it wasn't a one-time experience exclusively, rather the ability to draw close to Hashem, to be inspired, to serve Hashem at the highest level, that continues, it wasn't just at Harsinai, but now that travels with us in the form of the Mishkan, and our encampment surrounding the Mishkan, similar to the way we surrounded the mountain, highlights this parallel in this very powerful message. Last but not least, Rabbeinu B'chaye here in Perik Bays suggests a different parallel, and that is that the parallel of the camp of the Jewish people and the tribes and the way we're set up, says the Rabbeinu based on various Midrashim, parallels a celestial camp, up in Shemaim, up in heaven, made up of twelve tribes of angels, surrounding somehow the Kise Hakvod or some uh, intensive part of Hashem's presence up in the heavens. And each of these twelve tribes are divided into groups of three, surrounding them on all surrounding Hashem on all four sides, paralleling the campment of the Jewish people into 12, of twelve tribes in four groups of three surrounding the Mishkan. Benel, excuse me, the Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar very brilliantly points out that the Torah notes the names of the Nesim of the tribes. And if you look at all of the Nesim, all of the princes, the 12 princes that I mentioned, only four of them have Hashem's name, so to speak, of Aleph Lamed, Kel. Only four of them have that letter combination embedded in their name. Netanel, Shalumiel, Gamliel, and Pagiel. And says, Rabbi Nebuchay, wouldn't you know it? These four Nassim represent one of the tribes of each of the four clusters, that of Ruve and Yehuda, Ephraim, and Dan. That is to say, each of the four clusters, each of the four directions, had at least one nasi who had the name of Hashem embedded into the name of one of those Nassim, of those princes, thereby symbolically attaching, so to speak, Hashem's name to every section of the camp further highlighting this parallel between what's going up, up in Shamayim, in heaven, and what was going on down on earth in the Midbar. In L'cha'ora, this is symbolizing a different, very important message. And that is the unity between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the Jewish people. That we have the possibility, we have the power to create, so to speak, a heaven on earth. It is that much within our hands, we can create something that really mimics the most spiritual things in the highest of the high, just like they have in Shamayim. We can surround the Mishkan down here. the opening of our parsha, we read first about the census that Hashem commanded Moshe to take of the Jewish people, and then of the great detail describing the accompanying organization of the camp, as each of the Shavits each of the tribes were given their special place in the desert where they would travel as the camp of the people would move from place to place, organized with great specificity, the tribes had flags, the different Quadrants, three tribes in each of the four directions, had a representative flag. All of this is described to us in great detail in the first two prakim. question that can be raised is, if this was so important, why wait until the second year after they'd already left Egypt for all of this organization into the Shvatim and the Shvatim into their sections and their sections with their flags? Why not do this right away, immediately after they left Egypt, Why not do this in the first year after Yitzhi mitzrayim Why do we wait, as the Torah tells us, till the second month of the second year after they had left Egypt? One could also ask, uh, why Bechlal does each tribe even need their own flag? Why does anyone need a flag? And if anything, maybe one flag for the whole nation. So Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, in a short but incredibly important piece here at the outset of our Parsha, in MS Lyakov, explains that the flags, on the one hand, are liable to create period lavavos. There's a great danger to each tribe having their own flag, because it could easily have led to divisiveness. After all, he points out, each flag was a different color. According to the Mafarshim, the colors corresponded to the stone of that particular Shavit, as was worn on the breastplate of the Kohangadol, which, in turn, the stone and the flag represented and highlighted the unique characteristics, focuses, and strength of ...of that particular tribe. So each tribe, each Shevet had their own stone, their own color, their own flag... ...because, in fact, each of the Shvatim had their own Tchunot... ...their own characteristics, their own strengths, their own unique focus... ...and that was highlighted in these unique colors and in the unique flags. Well, if that's the case, says Rav Yaakov, by emblazing that color and that symbol on a flag... ...we can easily imagine, on a human level... That would make each of those tribes have tremendous pride in what made them special and made them unique. And if all 12 of the tribes had something else which gave them pride, and each one of them took pride in what made them unique, understandably, wouldn't that lead to a splintering of the nation? Said of Yaakov, yes, it might well have, could have, very easily. However, what saved the day and what prevented that was the fact that despite the each focusing on and celebrating and certainly being aware of what made them unique, they all shared a common focus, and that was the fact that all the tribes with all their flags surrounded something in the center, and that was the Mishkan. The Mishkan, being in the center of all of them, united all of the tribes and reminded them of their common calling, and that what was u- united them was far greater than what might divide or separate them. By having the Mishkan in the middle, it provided this unifying focus says Rabbi Yaakov, just like it would be absurd to think that the eyes and the ears, hands or feet of a person would somehow be in fighting with each other or divisive with each other because they have different purposes and different focuses. Obviously that's not the case. So too, says Rabbi Yaakov, with the nation having one central focus, one heart in the middle beating and providing energy and life force to all of them, the various tribes we yes with their uniquenesses, yes with their unique Destinies or particular strengths and talents, but nevertheless, they had something that united them. There was a common focus that reminded them that what was shared by them was far greater than what might be different. Rav Yaakov explains, in light of all this, so beautifully now we can answer the questions we began with. This is why it was not until the building and the dedication of the Mishkan that they, only after that, did they set up the camp and give out the flags. The Mishkan, as we know, was only completed and dedicated in the first month of the second year. And therefore, it was only after that, in the next month, in the second month of the second year, that the people are told about the flags and organized in the various sections surrounding the Mishkan. And Khanami, says of Yaakov, if this had done, been done initially before there was a Mishkan, then it would be a problem. But once there was a Mishkan, which took place in the beginning of the second year, now their diversity could be a unified diversity towards that common higher purpose and shared calling. We can understand this, Lahavdil, when we think of any sports team or a good functioning army, there are all sorts of different roles that have to be played. And if any two of the players or parts of the team or the army overlap, that's a redundancy which doesn't help at all. And if they each only focus on what they're good at and their job is, that'll lead to divisiveness and without a common focus of being successful and winning... No doubt, they will lose. But if they share the common focus, helping each other, because they each share the common focus of winning and all have the same ultimate goal, then the fact that they're different doesn't take away from that, but in fact enhances and makes their abilities much much stronger and much more effective. A number of years ago, in what turned out to be, I didn't know it at the time, but it turned out to be my last year in Baltimore, earlier in the year, we hosted for a special program both Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky, the son of Rav Yaakov, as well as one of my Rebbeim, Rav Mordechai Willig. And at that evening, as I introduced them, I mentioned this idea, and the fact that Rabbi Willig is a big lover of this idea, devotee of the idea, quotes it often. And in fact, in one of Rabbi Willig's Sefarim, Am Mordechai on Shabbos, he quotes this very idea from Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, and he uses it beautifully to explain... The words of a very well-known and popular and beautiful Shabbos Zemer that we all know. Karoilo, Shabbas, Right? The song says that whoever keeps Shabbos correctly without desecrating it, he receives a great reward. A re- great reward. Each person will receive a reward for what he does. And Rabbi Willick explains so beautifully that perhaps we could explain, understand as follows. Karo'ilo means each person, each community, has their own unique minhagim for how they celebrate Shabbos. They focus on different things. But that's only okay if it's called Shomer Shabbos Kados, as long as they have the common baseline of keeping the halacha. If that's the case, then enechanami, Skaro Harbei. Per Gimel begins with the pasuk of Ela. Told us Aaron and Moshe; these are the offspring, the generations of Aaron and Moshe. Byom diber Hashem es Moshe Bahar Sinai. After this introductory pasuk, the chapter then continues with the names of Ela, Shmos, and Aaron. Goes through the details with of the various children and descendants of Aaron and the family of Kohanim. Given the fact that the immediate succeeding P'sukim all focus on delineating. Aaron's offspring, and Aaron's family tree, <coughs> two obvious questions emerge. One is why is Moshe's name mentioned at all if he doesn't seem to be relevant to the subsequent sukkim. Secondly, if for whatever reason Moshe's name is mentioned, we know that in almost every time we have Moshe and Aaron coupled in a pasuk in the Torah, Moshe's name always goes first. Shemel Moshe v'aron or something like that. Yet here we have specifically the order reversed. Il told us Aaron, um, Moshe? If he's going to be mentioned at all, why second? And frankly, the better question even, why mention him at all? So in the Midrashim and in Chazal, we have many answers to these questions, and I want to share briefly three of them. First, when it comes to the first question of why Aaron is mentioned first, when usually Moshe is given uh, first and top billing. So the medrash in B'mid Barabbah in Parsha Bays tells us as following. This is a way of Hashem giving extra kavod or pumping up Aaron by mentioning his name first. And why did Aaron need that? So the Midrash explains that right before this, the Torah tells us that both Moshe and Aaron uh, were very thorough in checking out the yichus, the lineage of the various people who had been attached to the camp to make sure that everyone... Had proper lineage, we knew that everyone was in fact Jewish and what tribe they belonged to, etc., etc. And while this was happening, while Aaron was involved in this, a number of Jews were making fun of Aaron. Why are you checking Arychus? Look in the mirror first. After all, Elazar, your son, who did he marry? He married the daughter of an idolater, as the post says in Shmos. Perek Vav, Apostle ben Aaron, Lakach lo Putiel lo Isha. Putiel here is a reference to Yisro, but he, the name Putiel is used because this is a reference to Yisro before he saw the light, before he converted, and this is a reference to his idolatrous practice of fattening animals as part of his service of, of Odazara. So they said to Aaron, You're worried about our yichus? Why don't you look in the mirror? Why don't you worry about your yichus? once Hashem saw that people were making fun of the being in in own, so the Torah tells us, and this is in the words of the Medrash, K'vot sh'ra'k'arish baruch in bo Yisrael, hiktim That's why the Torah goes out of its way to specifically mention Aaron here first, in order to give extra kavod to Aaron to make sure that everyone understands that Hashem has not lost any of his faith in Aaron, and in fact, despite the unusual circumstances, but in fact, Aaron and his children had done nothing wrong. That, it's helpful for perhaps understanding why Aaron's name is first. It doesn't help to understand why Moshe is mentioned at all. So in a collection of Midrash known as the Medrash Agarab, one very beautiful answer is suggested. And that is to tell us that There was no jealousy whatsoever between Moshe and Aaron. Moshe, navi, Even though Moshe was the superior Navi, he was the one who got the Torah. Aaron was not jealous of him. Of Moshe, Roel Aaron, But when Moshe saw that Aaron had become the Kohen Gadol, and not only did Aaron become the Kohen Gadol, Af but now we see the descendants of Aaron that they are going to be the Kohanim and the future Kohanim Gadolim, Still, nevertheless, As a demonstration of how much love and how impressed Hashem was. With the selflessness and the absolute lack of jealousy between the brothers, Hashem goes out of his way here in the apostle to mention Moshe's name as well, as if to say, because they loved each other and so genuinely happy for each other's success, Uncle Moshe, in a certain sense, was also Father Moshe, because he was so happy for Aaron, he was so happy for Aaron's children not any tinge of natural human jealousy that we might have expected, and therefore his name is mentioned here because he had a genuine fatherly happiness and pride in the success of his brother and of his nephews. A third and final answer is one that many of us are familiar with because it's actually quoted Rashi here, but the source is a comment of Chazal in Gemara and Sanhedrin, Daf Tesem, and The Gemara tells us this is teaching us a different important rule, not about sibling uh, love, and lack of jealousy between siblings, but rather a different, more important, or more broad, I should say, halacha. Uh, it's not just about brothers in general. Anytime you have somebody who teaches Torah to someone else's children, you should know, says the Gemara, that that teacher is considered like a father. If you teach Torah, you become a spiritual parent to your students. And the proof text for this cited in the Gemara is our Pasuk. Why is Moshe being mentioned here? These aren't his descendants. This is not his offspring. It's not his family tree. It's all of Aaron's children. Aaron's family tree. And yet, says the Gemara, we see here, it comes to teach us, Aaron gave birth to them, but Moshe is the one who in fact taught them. These are also mentioned by Moshe. They're also as if, Moshe is the spiritual father uh, as well, and it's an incredibly powerful, uh, not only explanation of the Pasuk, but a very, very broad lesson for all of us who are in positions of influence. Yes, of course, it's true, uh, and the Torah certainly highlights the importance of Kibber HaVeim, and the fact that you give physical life, biological life to your children is an incredible thing. But there's an additional factor, which is the spiritual life and nourishment that we give. If we are privileged enough to give that spiritual nourishment to our children, so then we have both. We are both the biological and spiritual parents. But very often, and really in every one of our cases, whatever we give our children, but we also benefit largely from the teachers, the Rebbeim, the Moros, all the teachers our children have throughout the years. And anyone who teaches someone else's Torah it becomes a partner with the biological parent, becomes a spiritual parent as well. And the paradigm for this, and this significant lesson about the importance of teaching Torah and the influence you can have on people becoming almost a spiritual parent, we learn from this pasuk and the reference to Moshe here in the context of our own children. Parshas B'midbar opens with the Torah telling us, Hashem al moshe b'midbar Sinai b'ohel moed. This conversation, Hashem speaks to Moshe in the Midbar, in the desert, b'ohel moed, from the ohel moed in the Mishkan. And the Medrash, Rabbah here in Parsha Aleph, Simon Zion immediately wonders and asks, why do we need to know and why do we need to be told that this takes place, Davka, in the desert? l'ma b'midbar Sinai. After all, by the very fact that we know when this took place in the second year, and the second month, the fact that we know it took place in the Ohel Moed, meaning after the Mishkan has been established, we can very well and easily on our own deduce that all of this took place in the desert. We know where the Mishkan was in the second year after the Jewish people left Mitzrayim, and therefore we don't need the Torah to tell us that it took place in the desert, in the Midbar. Just once we know that it, it took place in the Ohel Moed, And in the second year, we could have figured that out on our own. So to this, the Medrash answers that in fact, the allusion here is not to just a geographical location, but in fact, that an essential component of the Torah that Hashem gave the Jewish people was three things. One of which was the fact that it was in the Midbar. That's not a coincidence. It didn't just happen to be given to the Jewish people in the desert. But there's an essential quality that we need when it comes to accepting the Torah, which is alluded to by the desert. And the other two say that it says the Medrash very fascinatingly, is that the Torah was given be'esh u'bamayim. It was also given with fire and with water, in addition to the fact that it was b'midbar. And in fact, the Medrash goes on to cite proof text for all three of these things. So, for example, the Torah itself is quite explicit in Parshish Yisro, that the har sinai ashan kuloh, that there was smoke, there was a great fire on top of the mountain at the given of the Torah. When it comes to the moisture or the water, that's more of an illusion the Medrish quotes a proof text from Shiras Devora, in the fifth chapter of Sefer Shoftim, which has Gam Shamaim Natafu Gam Avim Natafu Mayim, that the, the heavens and the clouds were dripping with water. There was some incredible amount of moisture or humidity, so to speak, in the air, some water in the air at the time of Har Sinai, And then, of course, the very fact that the Torah was given in the Midbar, specifically the, the extra allusion to it in our Parsha, is the proof text that is quoted. And is the, these three things which are not just incidentals, but in fact, evidently, essential characteristics of the Torah. Well, what is this essential characteristic? What is the Torah trying to highlight? What is the Medrash getting at? So there are numerous explanations to this, but a beautiful one is cited in the work Ksav Sofer. In his opening comment to our parsha. the Ksav Sofer says the following. He begins his analysis by the starting with Mayim. What does it mean that the Torah was given, so to speak, with Mayim? So he points out that there's a very famous additional medrash that points out that the Torah in other places with other psukim is compared to water. In what sense? We know that water is always looking for the lowest common denominator. No matter where water is, it will always go down naturally. So too, says the medrash, in order for a person to truly acquire Torah, we have to make ourselves like water. We have to humble ourselves. And this is an allusion, says the Ksar Sofer, to the fact that the Torah was given by Mayim, that only if a person has extreme humility and takes, so to speak, themselves and their personal interests out of the equation, then you can truly accept and embrace and understand the Torah. But if it's all about you and there's too much of an ego involved, a person will never successfully and genuinely acquire and study Torah. That's number one. Secondly, the Torah was given Ba'esh. What does that mean? After all, he says, we know the very famous Paul and Mishlei, Ki Mitzvah, the Torah Or. So number one, the quality in the good sense of Torah is that it can be Or. It can be the light of our lives, right? The world is a confusing place. What's right? What's wrong? What's moral? What's immoral? And we believe that the Torah is our guide. It's the light in our lives that will guide us to the moral and the right and the just and the correct way and the spiritual and uplifting way to live. On the other hand, continues the Ksav Sofer, based on both common sense as well as allusions and other psukim, he points out that fire, more than anything else, has a flip side, and that is the danger. On the one hand, you can cook, you can heal, you can do, create, you can do great things with fire. On the other hand, if you're not careful, fire can destroy, fire can enlighten, or it can burn. Says Ksav Sofer, Torah has an element of this as well. If a person learns Torah, but does so with personal, selfish, uh, you know, self-interested motives, you've turned the Torah, which itself is supposed to be something holy, into something that is itself impure, into a samhamavis, into a kind of a poison. Moreover, the more Torah that a person has, the more that's expected of him or her, not only in your own life, but also because, as the Ksasofar points out, if somebody sees you and you are associated with Torah, you're a religious person, you're a learned person, if they see you acting incorrectly and immorally and unethically, that will create obviously a very tolerable impact and ripple effect. And therefore, says, the fact that the more Torah you have, the more that's expected of you. Therefore, it says, It's like literally, we would say, playing with fire. The upside of the Torah is incredible, like all the positive power of fire, but at the same time, there is a huge downside risk. That is the unique nature of Torah. It is either incredibly powerfully good, or incredibly powerfully bad. We know this, uh, throughout the generations, whether it's in Jewish uh, religion or others, uh, religion can be the greatest force for good, but unfortunately in the wrong hands it can be the greatest force for bad. That's the idea of the Torah being given with fire. And last but not least, it says, getting back to our Parsha and our Pasuk, that the Torah was given in the Midbar. What is this idea of the Midbar? So the Ksav Sofer interprets this based on another Medrash that says that the Torah was given specifically to the Ochle Haman. It's not a coincidence that the generation that got the Torah is also the generation that was sustained by the Mun. What's the element of being sustained by the Mun, the miraculous food that fell in the desert? So the Ksav Sofer explains that Hashem gave them exactly what they needed, which was incredible, but no more. The dimension that the Jewish people had in the desert was mestapek b'muat they had just what they needed but they didn't overindulge, they weren't hedonistic they weren't overly materialistic, they didn't have more than that and therefore, it says in order to truly embrace a life of Torah in order to successfully learn Torah a person has to be mestak b'muat take what you need, but not look for more In this week's Parsha, in Parakimel, we read about the Pidyon HaBen ceremony that was conducted in the Midbar. As the Levim assumed the role of working in the Beis HaMikdash in place of the firstborn, a kind of redemption process was necessary. As our Parsha explained, each Levi came forth and displaced the Bechor, in a certain sense redeeming the firstborn that had been designated in the Avoda until then. However, the Torah describes that the firstborn, the Bechor, had outnumbered the Levium by 273. In other words, there were 273 uh, firstborns that had not yet been redeemed. So how are these firstborns going to be redeemed? If they had a certain Kedushah that had them working in the Mishkan until now, how could we take that Kedushah away and take away that responsibility from them? So the Torah describes that Hashem had them pay five coins to Moshe in order to redeem themselves, And Moshe then would transfer the money to the Kohanim. As we read in Perik, Gimel, Posak, Mem, Ches. So this is an example, first example of Pidyon HaBen, as described here in our Parsha. It's an unconventional, not a typical Pidyon HaBen, but the concept of it, in theory, is already now elucidated here. Interestingly, the Torah talks about Pidyon HaBen in other places as well, in Shmos, when the firstborn are saved from Makas Bechoros, the firstborn are mentioned in general terms of the mitzvah, the Pinyin and the obligation to re- redeem our firstborn, *Chol Bechor Banecha And later in Bamidwar, a third time, we'll read about Pinyin Aben* and Perkirchas, and that's when we get some of the specifics about the five Shkolim, and when the son is a month old, uh, etc. I wanted to discuss uh, briefly two related halachos about Pinyin HaBen that relate to who Affects the pigeon. Obviously, this baby boy is just that—a baby, so he can't take care of it himself. So, who's taking care of the pigeon haben? And what are the details of that halacha? So, in the famous Mishnah and Masechta Kiddushin, pigeon haben is listed as one of the mitzvot that is the responsibility specifically of the father of the boy. And interestingly, the Rambam, when he describes the bracha that the father will make when he does the pigeon haben with a kohen, the Rambam Paskins that it depends. If the father is doing the pigeon while this is still a baby boy, he says the bracha with al as the key word, al pigeon However, says the Rambam, let's say for whatever reason, a father never did it. Somebody grows up, maybe they weren't born religious, and now they grow up and they become a balchuva, let's say hypothetically in that case. Now he knows, oh my gosh, I'm a firstborn, I should have done a of aben. So this, the rabbi says, no problem, you can do it yourself. You could be podet yourself. However, says the Rambam, in such a case, instead of saying al we change the words of the bracha, and it's not al-pijon, but dos. And we know that this is an issue that comes up in all sorts of brachos. Sometimes we use al and some, as a prefix, and sometimes we use l. So says the Rambam, when it comes to Bikurim, it depends. If the father is doing the pijon, it's al. If the firstborn himself is doing it for himself, he says l. What is the basis of the distinction? So one of the later rishonim, the rivash. It's a very famous tshuva, where he explains this based on the Rambam's own words, where the Rambam, in another place, writes that the distinction between lo and al is that when you're doing a mitzvah for yourself, it's lo, or if you do a mitzvah for someone else, it's al. So it seems very straightforward that it's obviously perfectly consistent with what the Rambam was poskening when it comes to pidyon haben. but the Rivash points out that there's actually a deeper point being mentioned. When a baby boy is redeemed by his father, his father does the pidyon haben. Whose mitzvah is that really? Is it the father's mitzvah? He has a mitzvah? Or is it really the son's mitzvah? But since the son is, of course, only 30 days old, can't do it himself, the father's really standing in and doing it on behalf of the son. That's not clear. That's really a very fascinating conceptual question. So says Rivash, we can answer the question from these psakim of the Rambam. Given the fact that the distinction between whether the father does the pigeon or the son does it himself the Al versus the lo that indicates that really, 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 it's always the son's own mitzvah, which is why if he does the pigeon for himself, he says la. However, when the father does it, he's really acting as a quasi-shliach, kind of an agent for his son, and that's why he says Al, because it's not really his mitzvah. Says the Rivash, if when the father was doing it, in a typical case with a 30 day old, a month old boy, and the father was conducting the pigeon with the Kohen, if it was really the father's mitzvah, even the father would say, look, the fact that the father says, Al, indicates it's never really his mitzvah, he's just taking care of it on behalf of his son. Very interesting, uh, very interesting um, halacha. Um, this is related to the broader question uh, that is discussed as well in the postkim and that is? are You allowed in general to have a shliach perform the pidjohn haben uh, or not? So, interestingly, the Ramah Paskins and Hilchos pigeon haben based on this very same rivash that even though the father is kind of a quasi agent, but nevertheless, that is divinely ordained that the father do it. But let's say the father wants to ask someone else to be the agent, to be the shliach for him, says the rivash. The father is not allowed to do so. This must be done by the father or the boy himself. When he gets older, no one else can do it on behalf of the son. So this is something very, very uh, fascinating. Um, but that's the the Adarama, which is based on the Rivash. However, other post schemes like the Shach and the Taz disagree. For whatever reason, the father can't or won't do the mitzvah. He can f- ask someone else to be his agent. And fascinatingly, many meforshim, including the Vilna Gon, in the Malbim here in our parsha, they actually agree that a shliach should work, and they bring a proof from our parsha. After all, the 273 excess, extra firstborns, they paid the redemption money to Moshe, who then, as a shliach it seems, transferred the money to the Kohanim. So we see from our parsha that our shliach is a legitimate way of fulfilling the mitzvah. Just like the father can be the shliach, then someone else could be the shliach as well. Uh, finally, it's worth noting that the chassam sofer says it's not really such a machlokes Because if the father is giving the money to the shliach, and then the shliach is just doing the ritual with the Kohen, but it was the father's money, everyone would agree, he thinks, that a shliach can do it. The only machloket is, could a shliach use his own money? I don't know how often that would happen, but in such a case, maybe then we have the machloket. Seifar by Midbar and Parshas by Midbar open with Hashem's command to Moshe to take a census of the people. We are told that Moshe was commanded in the Sinai desert, Midbar Sinai, in the Olam in the Mishkan, in the second month of the second year, after they had left Mitzrayim, with the following command. Count uh, the heads, the names of all the different members of the Congregation of Israel, each according to their family, based on their family uh, units. Take a head count by every name, uh, count all the males. Which males? Shrim from twenty years and up and why that? Kyot Sait Bisrael, that's the age of inscriptment into the army. Tifkudu Osam, you should count them, let's say Osam, Atab Aaron. And then at the last minute, we are also uh, here a reference to the fact that Aaron will also be part of this count. A number of questions present themselves even in this straightforward accounting of this command to count the people. Number one uh, why all of a sudden does Aaron need to participate in this? Why do you need both Moshe and Aaron? One might have thought that it was pragmatically in order to share the load, uh, the immense workload of counting millions of people. But the reality is that that's clearly not the case, because if that would have been the case, then they would have split the tribes. Six tribes for Moshe, six tribes for Aaron, or something like that. And in reality, they both counted everybody. So what's the benefit of having both of them? Number two, obviously more basically, what's the point of the count? At all. And number three, a question that's already alluded to in the Zohar, which is why does the Torah emphasize the location where Moshe is commanded, where the count will take place? Midbar Sinai First of all, there doesn't seem to be any connection between any geographic location and a census. But number two is, why do we need references to both Bidmidbar Midbar Sinai and Olam Does it matter about Olam Oed? And once you tell me Oh Oed, don't I already know that obviously that the Mishkan is in the, the desert? What's the need for any location, let alone this dual uh, reference? So let's begin with the way the Zohar itself uh, addresses that last question. And then we'll see how the famed Hasidic master of Tzadok Kohen of Lublin develops this in a very beautiful and meaningful way. Says the Zohar, the reason that there's a count now is that not only has the Torah been already given at Har Sinai, but now the Mishkan has been erected and is fully functional. It's at that point, says the Zohar, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants to count and make a hejbon, so to speak, to see how many chayalim, how many soldiers, that's the language of the Zohar, that Hashem now has for both these dual roles, that of being the chayle HaTorah, the soldiers of Torah, and the chayle HaMishkan, the soldiers, so to speak, of the Mishkan. And by being counted, it's not just taking a a survey of how many there are but the very act of counting in essence serves as a way of enlisting drafting us into the army whether it's the army of Torah or the army of the Mishkan by counting Hashem is drafting us into his army and says says the Zohar this is why there are two locations that are mentioned because there really are two different missions one of the mission of Torah that's Bahar Sinai and a second the mission of the Mishkan and that's Ba'oha and therefore there's two different groups of soldiers and two different drafts alluded to by the two different locations this seems to be the, the basis of the Zohar, that Rav Tzadok Kohen, both in his Sefer pre which is on our Parsha, as well as in another one of his Sfarim, he also discusses this topic with Sisay Laila. and Rav Tzadok uses this Zohar, Zohar as a springboard and says the following. You have to understand the more basic point, which was the second question we had asked. What is the purpose of counting to begin with? Says Rav Tzadok, counting is not just getting to a final number, but rather by counting each person, we're telling each person that they count each person is counted because each person has their own mission. Kabbalistically says Rav Tzadok, this is based on the idea of there being 600,000 neshamos, which correspond to the 600,000 letters in the Torah. Without any one of them, we know, if you're missing a letter in the Torah, the Torah is disqualified, the Torah is possible. So too, says Rav Tzadok, So too, the idea is that every single person is part of one of these 600,000 shamos, and therefore, just like a Torah is disqualified as puzzle if you're missing even one, so too, the whole Jewish people would be missing something and disqualified, and not up to the task that the Jewish people are supposed to accomplish, if we're even missing one. In other words, each one of us truly, truly count, and that's why we are counted he continues and explains that's not only when it comes to Torah, but it's also true when it comes to the Mishkan. We know that the purpose of the Mishkan in this world, as much as we can understand such an esoteric concept, is to bring God's presence into the world, what we call Hashras Hashkina. And the message is also to everyone, not just the Levim, that in every person's heart is the capacity for Hashras Hashkina, not only in the Mishkan, with each inside every one of us, it says the Zohar, that by acknowledging Hashem as the King and that He has a claim on us and knows what happens, hashkacha pratis memela. That's how we, as individuals, bring the Shechina inside of us. As the famous Pasuk says, "Asuli It doesn't say B'tocho, but it says B'tocham. Make a mikdash, and I will dwell in them. In them meaning inside each and every one of us. So therefore says Reb just like we saw previously, that every person counts when it comes to Torah. And if you're missing one letter of the Torah, the Torah is disqualified. If you're missing one Jew, we can't do our mission from the perspective of being Hashem's Torah soldiers. So too says Reb just like everyone has a chilek in Torah, so to every Jew not just Shav Levi every Jew has a cheilah in the Mishkan a cheilah in bringing Hashem's Shechina down to the world so he writes kachish the mission, the, Mishkan, the mission of the Mishkan, the mission of the Mishkan, is to bring Hashem in this world, and every person ultimately is like a, a portable, or a mobile Mishkan, or Mikdash. Each and every one of us have the ability to do the same thing the Mishkan does, the Mikdash does, by bringing Hashem Shina down, inside every one of us. And going back to the pasuk, now says our Tzadok, we explain, now we understand why the wording was, B'mispar Shemot. Everyone, so to speak, has a name, because everyone counts. And that's why it says Se'u Rosh, which we translated uh, generally meaning to count, but literally means to lift everyone up. Shi'esh la'kol echad hitna miyuchad the kol chelik betorah o be'mishkan o nitzarach im yichser yifsal benimzakol echad. Minosei, Says or that's exactly the point, because everyone, in essence, is lifted up. Everyone is given an important mission, and if they don't do it, there'll be something faulty in the mission. Faulty in the mission of Torah, faulty in the mission of Mishkan. And therefore, it's Be'misbar, She'mos, and Su'as because everyone counts, everyone's important, and everyone is critical to the mission. And last but not least, now we understand why we needed both Moshe and Aaron to be part of the count. Because Moshe is, so to speak, the general of the Torah army, Aaron is the general, so to speak, of the Mishkan army. And why do we have them both together? Don't usually think them as two different things. There's the brain and then there's the heart. There's davening and there's learning. No, says Rab Tzadok. Ube'emes, mocha rey and Really the mind and the heart, the davening and the learning, they all are really together and need unified to do avodas Hashem.